You're listening to TIP. The evidence is overwhelming that retail investors, on average, of course, the stocks they buy go on to underperform the market after they buy them, and the stocks they sell go on to outperform after they sell them. So if you're buying stocks, the odds are they're going to underperform after you buy them. And if you sell, the odds are they'll outperform after you sell them. On today's episode, I'm joined by Larry Swedro, who's the head of financial and economic research for Buckingham Wealth Partners. Larry holds an MBA in finance from NYU and a bachelor's degree in finance from Baruch College. He has authored over 18 books and also writes for Advisor Perspectives, Alpha Architect, Wealth Management and Seeking Alpha. In this episode, Larry discusses why the ability to generate alpha has been shrinking over time, how the rise in competition has played an increasing role in the shrinking alpha, why active managers have an important role in markets, and he explains what would happen in the extreme scenario if everyone went passive. Also, he shares research behind dividend-paying stocks and whether investors should prefer dividend-paying stocks in their portfolio, and so much more. As always, I really enjoy chatting with Larry. He provides such a data-driven research perspective to his analysis. And I personally love reading his articles that he publishes. So if you want to check out his writing, which he does very frequently, make sure to follow him on LinkedIn. I always find his content very informative. So with that all said, I really hope you enjoyed today's discussion. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko. And on today's episode, I bring back Larry Swedro. Welcome back, Larry. Great to be back with you, Rebecca. Thanks so much for coming on for a second episode. I had to get you back on because last time you were on the show, we didn't get a chance to discuss your most recent book, The Incredible Shrinking Alpha, which is really all about how alpha is shrinking, like the title. And so today I was hoping you could elaborate on the reasons why, because you talk about alpha is shrinking, but also that alpha is increasingly becoming beta. And so I was hoping you could kind of walk us through why this is the case. Yeah, so I think it's probably helpful to begin by defining what we mean by alpha and beta. So alpha is outperformance against an appropriate risk-adjusted benchmark. So, for example, to keep it simple, if you outperform treasury bonds by buying junk bonds with their higher yields because they have more credit risk, that's not outperformance. If you outperform a high yield index, then that would be more like alpha and not beta. So the beta would be exposure to credit risk in that case. You could outperform by buying small stocks versus large stocks. Over the long term, small companies have outperformed large companies. So that isn't really alpha. You would have to outperform a small cap index. That would be an appropriate benchmark, something like, say, the S&P 600 index, not the S&P 500, which benchmarks against that. So what academics have been doing 
And the way I like to explain it is they look at the great performers, managers like Warren Buffett, and they try to see if this, they're doing something that's systematic and replicable and not skill-based, which may not be replicable. So are they buying stocks that have certain traits and characteristics that they could replicate just by buying all the stocks with that characteristic? And then if they could match, say, Warren Buffett's performance, then Warren Buffett's genius was in identifying those traits, not in individual stock picking and or market timing. So we have to distinguish between what is alpha, which uh, we know is a very unique skill set that very few investment firms have been able to generate over the long term, and beta, which everyone can access through various index funds or other factor-based or what's now called well, I don't like the term smart beta indices. So what happened originally is a good way to think about it is we know that Warren Buffett has greatly outperformed the market, especially in his first 40 or 50 years, right up through around 2010 or so. Now, he told people really exactly how he was doing it. He was buying cheap companies that were relatively profitable as well, okay? And he wrote about this in every year in his annual shareholder letters. So the, what the academics you could think about doing is reverse engineering, see if they can identify what types of stocks Buffett was buying. And the academic research in the 80s found a couple of unique betas, if you will, one was smaller companies. They had identified outperformed larger companies over the long term. And the other was cheap companies. They were selling at low price to earnings, low prices to book value or other metrics that measure value. And they outperformed. And in 1992, professors Farmer and French wrote a famous paper, The Cross-Section of Expected Returns, that summarized that research. And they found that once you accounted for three factors or three unique betas, one is exposure to the market. Number two, so some stocks have high betas. If the market goes up 10%, maybe they're 30% more exposed to market risk. So you'd expect them to go up 13%. And then you have other stocks, say like a state utility or a grocery store that would be less volatile. So if the market goes up 10, maybe their beta is 0.7, they would only be expected to go up 7%. The second one was the size factor, and the third was value, okay? And they found that once you accounted for these factors, that explained well over 90% of the differences in returns of diversified portfolios. With that, funds like Vanguard and Dimensional and others created systematic funds that bought cheap stocks and small company stocks. And you could no longer claim alpha simply by owning value in small stocks because I could replicate that. So a big part of Warren Buffett's alpha disappeared because now individual investors like you and I could go buy mutual funds and now ETFs at very low cost that replicated that. Now, Buffett still was generating some significant alpha. 
more academic research followed and identified what was called the momentum factor, which means that stocks or bonds, commodities, currencies that have outperformed in the last year tend to continue to outperform over a, another short period of time. Then in 2013, a fellow named Robert Novi Marx wrote a paper and that really uncovered Buffett's second secret, if you will. He found that highly profitable companies outperform lower profitable companies. And so now you could buy value stocks that were also more profitable. Then after that, a team at AQR expanded on that profitability factor and created what's called the quality factor, which looks at more than just quality being profitable, but do you have low financial leverage, which would make you less risky, for example? Do you have more stable earnings? Now, all these things are now incorporated into many different mutual funds and ETFs that we can access. So here's the key. 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, if you bought the kinds of stocks that Warren Buffett buys, small, you know, value, profitable, quality companies, you could claim legitimately alpha. Today, you can't do that anymore because you can buy funds run by companies like Dimensional and Avantis and many others that replicate that. And having done so, Warren Buffett's alpha has virtually disappeared. Now, it doesn't take anything away from his genius. He figured this stuff out 50 years before the academics. But we can all benefit from that today. We don't have to pay active managers to identify which stocks that are cheap, value, and profitable. We can just buy them all in an ETF or an index fund. And Buffett has had no alpha for the last 15 or 20 years. Once we adjust appropriately for exposure to these factors. And there continues to be academic research into these areas. But we now know that we can identify well over, say, 95% of the differences in returns of diversified portfolios simply by identifying what factors your fund is exposed to. And that makes it very hard for active managers to outperform because we've removed their ability to outperform simply by investing in these factors or traits. Yeah. And I want to clear something up here because the shrinking alpha refers to, as you mentioned, active managers ability to achieve more than a respective benchmark, but it's not necessarily the market returns. So it's not saying that they're underperforming the market. It's just that their respective benchmark, they're not outperforming that. So is it the case that they could still be beating the market, but they're just not doing better than their particular benchmark? Well, that's exactly the right way to think about it. But you don't want to pay an active manager to outperform the market if they're taking more risk by doing so. And you could do it exactly the same thing by investing in a lower cost ETF or mutual fund. So you want to make sure they're generating true alpha for which you would be willing to pay a somewhat higher fee to get. In other words, skills should be rewarded, but just investing in a pure index fund or other type of systematic strategy, that shouldn't require big fees. 
So it would be like saying I outperform the market by investing in private equity, which is illiquid. You may be locked up for 10 years, concentrated portfolio. That's not a fair benchmark. You want to compare it to an appropriate risk adjusted benchmark. Are there rules around what benchmark managers have to choose or are there cases where they use an inappropriate benchmark and they're like, look, I beat it? Yeah, that's actually that's a really good question, because unfortunately, the SEC has very liberal rules about what can be chosen. And there are academic research showing that they actually choose benchmarks, as you would expect, that are easy to beat. Let me give a simple example. The Russell 2000 was a really poorly designed index, and it was very easy to beat because every June when they reconstituted the index, which is the top 3000 stocks by market cap, and then you buy the bottom 2000, that's their small index, which means it isn't even really small, number one because there are a lot more stocks than 3,000. In fact, in 2000, there were about 8,000 stocks. Today, it's about 3,800, I believe. So you're not really small, you're more mid-cap, kind of. And then the Russell 1000 is the large cap. Now, every June, when they reconstituted, every active management, hedge fund, uh, high-frequency trader knew exactly which stocks would leave and which stocks would enter. And they would front run the indexes and they would buy the stocks that were entering before the index did, driving those prices up. And they would short the stocks that would leave the index because they knew the index funds would have to be selling those securities. And guess what? The Russell 2000 dramatically underperformed similar indices. There's something called the CRISP 610, which is the Center for Research into Security Prices at the University of Chicago, by something like 2% a year. The S&P 600 is a better design and stuff, and it's actually been changed over the years to incorporate the academic research. So actually, Vanguard used to run their small cap index fund based on that Russell 2000. And Gus Souter, after observing how poorly the fund did because they could get exploited, got them to change it. And they went to, I forgot which was, I think it was either the CRISP or a MSCI 1750. And they changed it again to one of those others. So the active managers are always going to choose the index that is easiest to beat, not the one that best represents exactly what they're doing. Now, we can identify that by running what is called regression analysis against these academic definitions that have been now in the literature. And then you can run and see what their exposure was to these factors. And then if there's excess return, either positive or negative, you could say whether the fund was generating value or destroying value. So really important to look at what exactly is the benchmark, and you could be virtually certain they're choosing inappropriate ones, the ones that are easiest for them to beat. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up that index because you write about that a lot in your book, uh, The Problems with the Russell 2000. And so I guess for investors thinking about buying ETFs or if you have ETFs that track that, you would you suggest that they might want to reconsider and switch that for a different one? 
I would not reconsider, definitely. There are other indices. The S&P 600 is a better index. The MSCI 1750 is a better constructed index. Yeah. Less ability to front run them as well. Yeah, that's super good to know. And I want to get into your recommended ETFs a little bit later in the discussion, but I want to ask a little bit more about the shrinking alpha because one of the reasons you talk about that it's been shrinking over time is because of increased competition. And so can you talk a little bit more about this? What do you mean by competition is getting harder? You talk about something called the paradox of skill, which I thought was super fascinating in the book. Yeah. So here's what's important for investors to understand. I was really part of the first generation, so I'm going to date myself here, that took courses in finance in a finance program because there really was no financial theory up until the really the late 19th, mid to late 60s when William Sharp and a few others were given credit for creating the first capital asset pricing model, what's called the CAPM. And now we had a way to define for the first time how risk and reward were related in securities. Prior to the early 70s, if you took a finance class, it was probably in an accounting program or an economics program. So I went through both in undergraduate and graduate school, really the first programs that taught financial theory, because there wasn't really much before that. So who is who are the people who were doing security analysis on Wall Street? They were often maybe an English major, went to work at Merrill Lynch and got trained and they learned and they would pick stocks based upon their research. Today, virtually everyone who is running money is a world-class mathematician, nuclear physicist, has degrees, uh, MBAs, if not PhDs, and advanced degrees in finance as well as math. So the competition is so much tougher. Literally, the uh, heads of research at, for example, Avantis, I mean, he's a rocket scientist. So they're much more skilled, better trained. They also have access to much better databases, which weren't around 50 years ago, and much faster computers that can look through data and, and help them do that. So today, the managers are far more skilled, right? So you have to think about the level of competition, how that works. And a way, I, I, a good way to explain it is I think, think about tennis. Roger Federer, many people think, is certainly one of the greatest tennis players of all time. He literally never lost a match in the first round of a Grand Slam tournament. Now, he was still playing against one of the top 128 players in the world, and he never lost the match. That's tough competition, right? And he still never lost. In the second round, maybe he lost once. In the third round, a couple of times. By the time he got to the semifinals, he still won maybe two-thirds of his matches and maybe in the finals, 60% of his matches. So now he's playing against, by the finals, the number two or three player likely in the world. He would still win, but his margin of winning was smaller, right? What that tells you is when the competition is easy and there's big dispersion of, you know, skill sets, it's easier to win. The skill differences can show. 
when the skill differences narrow, much more of it might be luck. How did he feel that day? Did a ball hit the tape and drop in or just miss or whatever? And that's what's happened in the equity markets for a second reason. Not only are these managers much more skilled, but the pool of victims needed to outperform has been shrinking dramatically. You have to remember, if one manager outperforms because they bought, say, Tesla, and they overweighted it relative to the market, say Tesla is 1% of the market and they have 5% of their portfolio. So they've overweighted Tesla and Tesla outperforms, then somebody by definition must underweight, right? Well, you need victims then that you're exploiting. Who are the victims? There are two groups of investors we want to consider. One is retail and the other is institution. The evidence is overwhelming that retail investors, on average, of course, the stocks they buy go on to underperform the market after they buy them and the stocks they sell go on to outperform after they sell them. So if you're buying stocks, the odds are they're going to underperform after you buy them. And if you sell, the odds are they'll outperform after you sell them. Now, somebody's got to be on the other side of that trade, right? So it's the reverse for institutions. They are more sophisticated. The problem is that you still have costs to overcome and both sides could lose. The retail investors happen to lose even before expenses of trading, taxes, etc. The institutions win, but before expenses, but on average, not enough to overcome their total expenses. All right, so that's key. Now, the problem for the market, why there's shrinking alpha is coming out of World War II, 90% of all stocks were held by individuals in their brokerage accounts. So there were plenty of suckers at the poker table to exploit. Today, almost 90% of the trading is done by the big institutional investors, hedge funds, high frequency traders, Goldman Sachs, etc. Who are the victims? What it means is when Renaissance technology is trading against Goldman Sachs, who's the sucker at the poker table? It's hard to know. The odds are probably 90% that they're, when they're trading, they're trading with somebody with the same skill level. Very hard to win that game when you're both spending money and only one of you can outperform even before expenses. So you have these two problems here. The last point I'll make is this. Investors make the big mistake of thinking about competition in the way we think about a tennis match or a chess match. If I'm playing tennis against you know somebody, if I have a little bit more skill than them, I'm going to win a significant number of the matches. If I have a lot more skill, I'll win every one of them, right? Like we said, Roger Federer never lost the first round match, and he's still playing against the top 28. But when he's playing against those top few, he only wins by a small margin, right? But when we're competing in the stock market, we're not competing one-on-one. We're competing against the collective wisdom of the entire market and all these big institutions who in their collective wisdom are setting prices. It's much harder to win a game when you're competing against the collective wisdom of the market. 
Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. And then I guess just on that point, because you talk about and you spoke about this a lot in our last episode, how the winning strategy in your view is passive along with factor investing. But on the flip side, then we know that more funds are moving into passive versus active, but What role do active managers play in markets? Because what would happen in the very extreme scenario where everyone went passive? Yeah. So let's just go back to your paradox of skill just to wrap it up. I just want to make sure everyone understands. So the paradox of skill is the more skillful the competition, the harder it is actually to outperform. And that sort of seems to make common sense, right? All right. So... Active managers play a very important role in the market. So we definitely don't want all of them to disappear. Their actions and what's called price discovery help to make the markets efficient. And by that, we mean moving prices to what is really the best estimate of the right price. That's important because if you have, you know, mispricing like financial bubbles, which happen from time to time, then too much capital gets allocated to those industries and gets wasted in terms of the economy. We get wasted investment, right? 
So we want markets to be efficient. And clearly, they play an important role. The question is, how many of them do we need? Do we need the tens of thousands of hedge funds and active mutual funds and active ETFs to keep the market efficient? I would argue you need maybe 1% of them. And I base that on this. In the 1950s, Rebecca, how many mutual funds do you think there were in the United States? Just take a guess. Today, the number's like in the 10,000 plus mutual funds and 10,000 hedge funds. I don't know. My gut is saying there would be less. It was under 100. And while the market was not as efficient as it is today, because the competition is much tougher, the pool of victims is you know, much smaller, and we didn't have academics converting alpha into beta then in the 50s. And still in that era, with less than 100 funds, most of the mutual funds were still underperforming. So today we have much more competition. The sources of alpha are disappearing because academics convert them into simple beta. The pool of victims is shrinking and the supply of dollars. That's the fourth factor in the incredible shrinking alpha has grown dramatically chasing a smaller pool of alpha because 30 years ago, there was only about 300 billion, for example, in hedge funds. Today, it's like four or five trillion. So a lot more dollars chasing these smaller sources of alpha and fewer of them. That's why it's getting harder and harder. But we want to keep them around, but we don't need tens of thousands of them. My guess is, given the sophistication and the high-speed computers, if you had 100 active managers, markets would be highly efficient. All right. And I guess the other thing that I wanted to kind of talk to you about is another thing that a lot of investors struggle with is whether to go concentrated or more diversified. And so some people might meet in the middle somewhere, but I really like your perspective on this and all the research that you put out behind this topic. And so I was hoping you could share your recommendation on this for our listeners. Yeah, well, the question for investors is, What's your objective? Is it to get rich or which also means you have to take a lot more risk to do that or to give the best chance of achieving your financial goals? You want to get rich. You can take your IRA to the lottery tickets and go buy one or the racetrack or Las Vegas casinos or buy one stock. And maybe you get lucky and you bought Tesla or Google. On the other hand, I can name you some of the greatest companies in the world that were, you know, the high flyers of their day, and they're all bankrupt and gone, like Polaroid and Kodak and Enron, and we can name many others that were once the Teslas and Googles of their day. What most people don't understand, but economists know, and that's why they call diversification the only free lunch in investing is they think, let's say we assume that the stock market, just for ease here, has an expected return of 10%. So if you ask somebody, what are the odds if you buy one individual stock, you're going to get 10%, they probably think of a potential distribution of, say, there are 4,000 stocks, that it would look like a bell curve, where the mean and the median are the same, So half the stocks would do better than 10 
and half the stocks would do worse than 10. Unfortunately, it doesn't look anything like that. And it can't look like that, really, because you have to think about that stock market returns can't be normally distributed. And the reason is this. What's the most you can lose when you buy one individual stock? Well, you could lose just 100% of your investment, unless I guess it's a margin account. Well, you can still only lose 100%, right? You may have to then put it to meet the margin call, right? So that's a risk there. So your losses could, in theory, be unlimited there. But what's the most you could gain as a percentage? Unlimited. It's infinite, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's infinite. So when you think about that, then if you own the one Google and you get a 10,000% return just to pick a number, right, and the market got 10, then whole bunches of other stocks must have done much worse than 10 to allow that to happen, right? And so what the data shows very clearly is the mean stock is very different than the median. So most of the stocks get less than 10%. I think it's like 60% roughly might think of it that way. And a large majority, the most common actually return is minus 100%. A lot of stocks eventually go to zero and only 4% of all the stocks account for 100% of the excess return above treasury bills. So if you think about that, what are the odds you're going to own, buy, and hold on so you get that great return to that 4% of the stocks? Well, the research shows the active managers are highly unlikely to do it. What are the odds you are? And so the more stocks you own, the closer you move the mean to the median there. So they both are at the same. If you own the entire market, you get the market return. The fewer stocks you own, the odds favor you'll actually underperform the market. It's just simple math. So what you want to do is identify the risks or factors or traits or characteristics that you want exposure to. So if you want to be like Warren Buffett and all the funds I invest in run by fund families like Bridgeway, Dimensional, and Avantis, they buy all of the stocks that fit their defined universe. And these are what I own are small value, profitable, quality companies, but they buy all of them. They're not trying to identify which ones. So my you know, expected return is the same exactly as anyone who buys one stock, but my dispersion of potential outcomes is much narrower than the one person who buys one stock. They could go bankrupt or they could make, you know, 10 times the market return. I just have one follow up on kind of when you're talking about some stocks or even, I don't know if you said a large portion go to zero, but I'm wondering if there's any color on kind of what subset of stocks those are. I would assume it'd be maybe smaller micro cap companies, but do you have any more color on that? Yeah, there is a group of stocks that I call lottery stocks. They have a distribution that is nowhere near a normal distribution. Their distribution of returns looks like a lottery ticket. So, for example, there are people who buy stocks in bankruptcy, right? You've even seen the Reddit crowd jump on 
and try to spread the word. Hey, that one I think Hertz or one of them was going bankrupt. You know, they loaded up on this stock. Well, the academic research shows that if you had a hundred stocks that were in bankruptcy and they're still in indices and owned by them, but none of the funds I own include them because they are academic research based. So they screen these stocks out. But as long as they're in an index, an index fund will buy them. If you had a hundred of them, one of them on average will return even one penny to investors. But investors like them because they say, well, if I buy a thousand dollars, I can only lose a thousand. But if it comes out of bankruptcy and does well, I can make a hundred times my investment, right? Problem is you could still lose a hundred percent. And the odds greatly favor that you will do that. There's a whole group of stocks that are very similar to the stocks that Kathy Woods of ARC, uh, her ARC fund, buying these innovative, disruptive technology companies. Companies, the research shows, that have rapid growth of assets, high investment then, but low profitability, have god-awful returns over the long term, they've underperformed treasury bills. But people love to buy them because they're hoping they can hit the next Microsoft, the next Google, the next Tesla. But the odds of doing so are so poor you shouldn't try. That was really helpful. And this gets into an even broader topic I wanted to talk to you about, which is why good or even great businesses are not always great investments. Yeah, this is a really interesting one. So let's talk about a problem, um, Rebecca, that investors have, and they don't understand the difference between information and value-relevant information. Okay, and there's a big difference. And the, the example I use to explain this, it relates to sports betting, which has become a huge business in and of itself in the United States. So here I show an example of choosing. There's a basketball game in college basketball between a team called Duke, which is a perennial great team. They're usually in the NCAA tournament. They've won many national championships and they're playing Appalachian State team. If they played them a hundred times, would win likely a hundred times. And so if you want to bet on Duke, you can't just bet somebody and say, I want to bet on Duke. Uh, I call you up, Rebecca, and I say, let's put a hundred dollars. I'll take Duke and you'll take Appalachian State. Even if you knew nothing about sports, being a bright woman, you might go and look on the internet and find that Duke is favored by 10 points. What that means is if Duke wins by less than 10, you would win the bet. So in other words, if Duke won the game, say 69 to 60, you get 10 more points as Appalachian State added to your 60 in terms of our bet. And now your score is 70 and Duke is 69. I lose the bet. Okay. So what the point here is this, everybody knows that Duke is a better team. They've got better athletes. They've got better coaching, better facilities, you know, et cetera. So then you ask people who determines the point spread and they think it's Las Vegas betting houses, but it's not true. They just set what's called that initial point spread. 
And let's say, Rebecca, that they set, you know, the Las Vegas uh, house, woke up one morning and took a stupid pill, right? So they set the spread at zero. What would you do? Without even knowing too much about sports, you might pick up the phone, call your bookie, bet as much as you could on Duke, right? Because it's almost a certain win. So now the bookie wakes up and the bookie's got to bet that Duke will lose, right? They're on the other side. They don't like that. Bookies don't want to make bets. They want to take bets. So what does that mean? They've got to find someone now on the other side. So they, the stupid pill is starting to wear off. They raise the spread to five now, and I come along and I bet on Duke, and now they got an even bigger buck on that. So they now raise the spread until maybe it's 20 points, and then someone says, I know Appalachian's not going to win, but I don't think Duke will win by 20, and they push the spread down. So by the end, just before the game starts, it's the collective action of thousands and thousands of individual bettors, often betting with their hearts uh, and not their minds because there may be a graduate of Duke or a graduate of Appalachian State who are actually setting the point spread. Now, how many people do you know, Rebecca, that have gotten rich betting on sports? I don't know any personally. Now, I don't know anyone either, right? Doesn't mean they don't exist. But most people, the ones who get rich are the bookies, right? Mm -hmm. So here we have a bunch of amateurs like you and me setting the point spread. What does this have to do with investing? Okay. So let's say you have a glamour growth stock and let's call it Google and a distressed value company. Let's just say it's Ford Motor. Now, let's say they're both have earnings of a dollar a share. But the P.E. of Google is, say, 30, and the P.E. of Ford Motor is 7. So the price of Ford is 7, and the stock price of Google is 30. This would be a rational market, right? You pay a higher price to get the much greater earnings. What if the price of Google was 7, in which case there would be no point spread, right? It would be like Duke playing Appalachia state and having no point spread. That world can't exist because smart people would bid up the price of Google until it got to 30. And now the risk adjusted odds of betting on either team or investing in either company would be the same. Just like it is the same here, the point spread here equalizes the risk of Duke against Appalachian State. There was actually, Rebecca, a study done on sports betting in National Basketball Association over a number of seasons. And they found that the actual difference in the average error in the point spread. So let's say the Boston Celtics were playing the Lakers and the point spread was favoring the Celtics by three. Now, they may win by 13. That would be an error of 10. They may actually lose by five. That would be an error of minus eight. The average error was less than one quarter of one point, which tells us that the market in sports betting is highly efficient, meaning the average error is very small. And the same thing is true with stock prices. Here you have much more sophisticated 
investors setting prices through their actions. And this is why it's so difficult. So Google, if you hear, say, Jim Cramer come on CNBC and tell you, here's this great company. It's got, you know, great management, great products. Their earnings are going to explode, etc. All he's told you is something that everybody already knows. You just heard it on CNBC. And he's told you nothing more than the equivalent of Duke has better athletes. They've got two seven-footers and Appalachian State's tallest player is six seven. They've got better coaching, etc. That knowing Google is a better company and has better prospects is information. It's not value-relevant information because that information, if it's known, is known by everyone. And the market prices for risk, not growth. That's what people don't understand. So let's address your question finally, tie this all together for you. By looking at, say, Rebecca, you had $10 million to invest. And you could buy one of two identical properties, brand new constructed buildings with the same technology, one in Manhattan on Park Avenue, and it's going for 10 million. The other is in downtown Detroit, and it's going for 10 million. Which building would you buy? Would go New York. Yeah, because the rents are going to be much higher than they would be in Detroit, right? You know, you could command maybe today a hundred bucks a square foot there and maybe 10 bucks there. Which building is Google and which building is Ford Motor? So I think the Google would be the better one. So New York and then Ford would be Detroit in this. Exactly. Example. Which one is Duke and which one is Appalachian State? That one, I can't remember. Duke would be the better yeah. one. Yeah. Right, exactly. So this world can't exist any more than Duke would have a zero point spread against Appalachian. It can't exist any more than Google and Ford Motor would both trade at the same P.E. ratio. So let's look at a more realistic example. So now, you know, you're an investor and you say to your financial advisor, you know, this building in Manhattan, I love it, but I've got to pay their market price is 30 million. But I'm going to get, I estimate, 100 bucks uh, a square foot and their rents will grow. And so my expected but not guaranteed return, nobody knows what's going to happen about the future of return to work, et cetera. But our best estimate is of the future rents will give us an expected return of 10%. If I have to pay 30 million. Now, the Detroit property, it's only going to cost you 5 million, but the rents are much lower. So you could end up with the same expected return, even though you're getting low rents, but you paid one sixth the price. Now, which building should you prefer here, given that they have the same expected return, Rebecca? Before you answer it, though, think about which one is safer. And if you have the same expected return, but you have a less risky option, which should you prefer? So what, which building would you buy, knowing that these are expected returns, but not guaranteed? I guess a rational person would probably want the less risky one because then... And you that's have the a Manhattan property. Yeah. yeah. And that's the Manhattan property. 
So this world can't exist either because we, we don't just look at expected returns. We care about risk relative to that. So now the price of Manhattan property gets built up to 50 million and the price of the Detroit gets down to 3 million. Now we have a rational world where some people who want less risk, maybe a widow, she says, I'm happy getting that 6% return. I'll buy a share. I can't buy a $50 million building, but I'll buy a REIT, a real estate investment trust that owns those types of buildings. So now I get hundreds of them and they look like that. And my expected return is 6%. I'm happy. And then you have other, maybe a younger investor who's got a stable job, can afford to take some risk with some portion of his portfolio, buys a REIT that invests in much riskier properties, but they have higher expected returns. There's no right answer here. And this is Google versus Ford Motor. Ford Motor, you said, is B. It's got to have a much higher expected return to entice you to invest. Google should have a lower expected return because it's a safer investment. And that's the problem investors, they mistake this difference. Riskier companies have to have higher expected returns if the world is rational. And therefore, great companies should have lower expected returns. That doesn't mean they're bad investments. That just means they're less risky. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with, and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, High interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. 
The purposeful cockpit leg driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22 way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Okay, thank you for tying that all together. That really hit it home. I th- it did for me at least, and I hope it did for everyone listening, because I think a big reason or an argument for favoring great businesses, as Warren Buffett calls them, where he holds them forever, is that his logic is, I want to own great businesses because I believe they will continue to compound at this high rate. They have this moat and that they're able to, I guess, achieve this super normal return. But then I guess maybe your argument and what you just explained makes sense where these great businesses then by definition should have a lower expected return because they're safer and that's information. And then is there anything else to that argument you would like to add that you didn't cover in that previous example? Yeah, the only thing I would add is when, because since you mentioned Buffett, Buffett buys great companies at low prices. So he doesn't just buy cheap companies. He buys cheap companies that are profitable, don't have a lot of financial leverage. So they're a little less risky, right? He could buy riskier companies and maybe even get higher expected returns for that. But that's not his preference. The one thing I would add on top of that is this. One of the things we know is that's one of the strongest forces in the universe is reversion to mean of abnormal earnings. So what do we mean by normal earnings? Obviously, over the long term, corporate earnings should grow about the rate of growth of the economy. So if the economy is growing at 6%, 3% real and 3% inflation, the big numbers, Corporations can't grow their earnings more than 6% a year unless they eventually become the whole economy, right? So abnormal earnings growth is more than 6% or negative abnormal would be less. Now, what most people don't understand is abnormal earnings growth reverts to the mean at an incredibly fast rate on average. So companies like Google and Tesla are extremely rare where they are able to grow their earnings at abnormally high rates for longer periods of time. And even they then eventually run into a wall. And here's the numbers. So let's say you're growing earnings at 26% and six is the normal. That's a, your abnormal earnings at 20%. On average, abnormal earnings revert to the mean at 40% a year. So 40% of 20 would be eight. So instead of 26, next year, you're going to grow more likely 18. And then now that gap is 12, 40% out is five. The next year, here now down to 13, and it's quickly. So unless you're paying, well, let me say it this way. If you're paying a price that anticipates, like Kathy Woods, you look at these incredibly high PEs that they are trading at, that is literally impossible to continue. The stock she was buying, she was without question vastly overpaying for, and bubbles eventually burst. When you see high PEs like that, it literally 
certainly possible for one or two companies to do that for a long time because while they're small, they can grow large enough, eventually become large enough, you can't do it anymore. But when you own a hundred stocks, it's literally impossible for all of them to justify that high a PE. And that we saw what happened, for example, in the NASDAQ in March of 2000 was trading like over a hundred times earnings. And the NASDAQ, those stocks collapsed like 80%. You know, things that can't continue eventually end. <laughs> That's pretty simple to remember. So what you want to make sure you're careful of is do not extrapolate abnormal earning growth far into the future. It's highly unlikely disruptive technologies get disrupted themselves. And you can see it just, for example, you know, what happened even, say, to a Google and their search engine, all of a sudden, ChatGPT comes along, says, oh, my God, this could change the whole world. And you know, their ability to generate revenue from search could literally disappear overnight. That's not a prediction. I'm not saying that. I'm just pointing out that some of the greatest companies in the world, like Polaroid and Eastman Kodak and many others, digital equipment were the you know, stars of their day. And people were paying 50 times or more earnings for them because they expected them to continue that abnormal earnings growth for a long time. And of course, that didn't happen. It is so interesting to look at the largest market cap companies a couple decades ago. None of them are the same today. And so we think that these tech companies are here forever and that they're, I guess, indestructible. But at the end of the day, it just took one AI innovation for them to, for the markets to be scared and for that to maybe disrupt them. And so yeah, it's I really like that point you hit home. I feel like I never have enough time when I'm chatting with you because I have a couple more things. Well, one more thing I want to get through at least, and that's on dividend stock investing, because this is such a cool topic, too, because often dividend companies are thought of as great investments and they're sometimes preferred by investors. And some reasons could be that they like the immediate cash flow instead of a future unknown appreciation. They have this perceived stability of the stock, given that it's usually more mature, lower beta. And then some investors might think that dividend stocks actually outperform non-dividend paying stocks. So I wanted to explore these reasons with you because I know you've done a lot of interesting research on this work. And so I was hoping you could shed some light if there's any merit to any of these claims. Well, it's sort of the answer isn't black or white in this case. So, but the academic evidence and theory is very clear. So I'll try to put it this way. Dividends are irrelevant. They're not good and they're not bad, except from a tax perspective. If you're a taxable investor, dividends are bad because you pay income tax on the cash flow. And if you don't need that cash flow, then you're better off deferring the tax and getting it in the form of long-term capital gains eventually when you sell. So you allow your to grow. Dividends, company, people like dividends for psychological reasons, that's discovery, but they make the mistake like they're thinking a dividend is a return on their investment. So I'll give you an example. Stocks have returned roughly 10% over the long term. And let's just assume for simplicity purposes, half of that came from dividends and half from capital appreciation. Now, you got to remember, 70% of all the stocks don't pay any dividends. 
Okay. Now, what people forget is they don't understand that the companies who paid no dividends, they got the same 10% return that the stocks that pay dividends. So companies pay dividends, they just change the form of the earnings. And when you, if you own a stock that's say trading at 100 and you own one share and you get a dividend of $10, now the price is 90 and you have $10 in cash. You have a hundred bucks investment. And I own a company that is trading at a hundred. It doesn't pay a dividend. So the stock price doesn't move. We both have a hundred dollars, but you had a taxable dividend and I didn't. So why would I prefer the dividend? I shouldn't. I'd much prefer the company to buy back the stock drive, which would push the stock price up. And if I need the cash, I will then sell the stock to generate the cash. So I could sell $10 worth of the stock to create the same cash flow if I need it. And that's why academic theory is very clear. Stock dividends should be completely irrelevant because you can create your own self-dividend and it doesn't matter there. So the mistake that people make is buying stocks for the dividends. Now, having said that, Companies that pay dividends tend to have certain characteristics or traits. They, as you said, tend to be mature, maybe more profitable. It's a tendency, not always the case. Some of them go bankrupt and suspend their dividends, right? But generally, companies that have increasing dividends, right, are stocks that have provided higher returns, but they don't provide any higher returns than stocks that have the same characteristics, but don't pay any dividends. So you look at the characteristics we talk about, whether the PE ratio, for example, is a measure of value, their profitability, are they a quality company in terms of their financial leverage, those types of characteristics. And the research shows if you take two groups of stocks that have the same traits, but one group pays dividends and the other does not, you get the same returns before taxes, but for taxable investors, you're better off. The other thing is since 70% or so of the stocks don't pay dividends, you clearly have a less diversified portfolio. And that means you have a greater dispersion potential outcomes, which means you have a more risky portfolio with the same expected return so that's a reason why you shouldn't own just dividend paying stocks. You should own stocks with the characteristics you desire and don't care whether they pay dividends per se or not. So that gives you the broader diversified portfolio. There's tons of academic research on this. I've written about it. Many of my books have an appendices explaining the psychological reasons why people prefer dividends and the research showing that there's no logical financial reason to own them. But you do want to consider what factors or traits or characteristics you would prefer. That was extremely helpful and insightful as always, Larry. Thank you so much for coming back on again. The time always flies when I have you on. So before I let you go, can you remind the listeners where they can go to learn more about you and all of your books and work that you put out? Well, I write regularly for three websites now, Wealth Management, Advisor Perspectives, and Alpha Architect, usually once a week. I post all my articles so everyone can just follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn. 
and I'm the head of financial and economic research at Buckingham Wealth Partners. So you can check our website out. And of course, you can go to Amazon and check, just type my name in and you'll see the 18 books I've written and pick up some of them to get educated, which is my most important advice to investors, an educated investor. And by that, I mean learning what the academic literature says is the most prudent way to invest. And instead of tuning into CNBC or Bloomberg News to hear what we would call noise, which is likely to lead you to poor outcomes. Awesome. I will make sure to link those in the show notes so the listeners know where to find you. My pleasure. Great being back. Happy to come back again, Rebecca. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you left a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, make sure to sign up for our free newsletter, We Study Markets, which goes out daily and will help you understand what's going on in the markets in just a few minutes. So with that all said, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.